0: Hi there, I am Carla Nappi, and this is the New Books in Science, Technology, and Society podcast. Thanks so much for joining me today for an interview about a book that I'm really excited about. So this is Sophia Roost's book, Synthetic. How life got made. This came out with the University of Chicago Press in 2017, and I really love it. And not only because it contains epigraphs from Bjork and Margaret Atwood, um, because you'll uh, hear us talking about a moment in the book where robots are making life, um, and not only because it does a really ingenious job at weaving together um, lots of different kinds of materials from the arts, from the sciences, from philosophy, um, from music, to tell a really important story with implications that I think reach um, well beyond the field of synthetic biology. The book is also written in such a way that it's um, very much a pleasure to read. And so the chapters, as you'll hear about in the moments to come, are interwoven with interludes that offer a kind of keywords approach to understanding what the term synthetic has meant in the past um, in important moments that still shape or at least inform what synthetic means and can mean um, and might mean moving forward to people working in synthetic. Synthetic biology today. The chapters look in turn at early efforts to model and engineer um, very simple genetic viruses. They look at what's happening in for profit laboratories. They look at what's happening in classrooms, um, in households, in kitchens, in garages, in workshops, among hobbyists, um, among professionals. It really offers a way to think beyond how we understand the boundaries of science and its practices. And also to really think critically, not just about life and what life can mean, has meant and might mean, but also about what we're thinking about when we think about science and its boundaries. So there's a lot of fascinating stuff um, that you'll hear Sophia talking about in the hour to come. So I'll wrap up my intro here and I'll just say, I hope you have a chance to get your hands on a copy of the book because it's really, really um, just full of stuff that we didn't have a chance to talk about here. Um, You'll hear us talking about some images that you'll find in the physical copy of the book um, when you get a chance to read it. And also I'll say, thank you. Thank you for listening. Thanks for supporting the channel. And I really hope you enjoy this one. I'm here today to talk with Sophia Roost about her new book, Synthetic, How Life Got Made. Welcome to the New Books and STS podcast, Sophia. Thank you for making a really, really fascinating object for us to talk about and for making time to talk with me about it today. Looking forward. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So let's start with the big traditional first question what brought you to science studies sophia and how did you come to focus on synthetic biology in particular well
1: i mean like most people in science studies when i was seven years old i didn't say i wanted to be an sts scholar when i grew up (laughs) so uh i had a kind of a roundabout way of getting here actually several roundabout ways but um I was always really taken by biology. I loved biology. And I had assumed that that would be my career. I was working in laboratories since high school. Um, And I took a course as an undergraduate um, in the introduction to anthropology just to fulfill some course requirements. And uh, the reason why I chose anthropology was because my Mom had been an anthropologist, and I thought, well, you know, I should try it. She also said that I should never become an anthropologist. She thought that this was the worst thing that could possibly happen. <laughs> so, I definitely wanted to sign up for a course, and um, I took a, a class with Hannah Landecker, who was at Rice University at the time, on the history of biotechnology. And the course really was. Uh, nothing less than a revelation for me um and i still i actually teach a history of biotech class to the to to this day so i I kind of I, i love that aspect of my career and that i've kind of come full circle um When I took the course, I realized that the kinds of questions I had been asking after in the laboratory weren't necessarily biological questions. They were social and historical ones. And after that, there was just really no turning back. I knew that that was what I wanted to do. Um, And that got me to to MIT, where I started um, studying in a department that's called the History and Anthropology and Science, Technology and Society program. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's how I, I got into synthetic biology, actually. Um, the year before I started grad school, I was working for a bio artist slash techno artist named Natalie Jeremy Jenko. This is something I talk about a little bit in the book. And my job was to ghostwrite this magazine that existed at the time called the Biotech Hobbyist magazine. So every week I was writing stories about, you know, how to uh, culture your own Set your own tissues at home, how to insert green fluorescent protein into cells. Um, I did another piece called the genetic horoscope, which was about um, trying to predict your future based on your genome. Uh, And I was doing all sorts of weird stuff like that. And we were modifying robotic dogs to chase after um, different kinds of particulate matter in the air. (laughs) Um, And all of this got me thinking about, you know, different ways of biology being done and, and different kinds of biological materials that are outside of what you would consider to be orthodox biological experimentation or even biotechnology, you know, places where um, biology could be treated as an art object, right, in, in a gallery. and. When I got to MIT, I found out about this new group that had just started up the year before, the Synthetic Biology Working Group, and it seemed to me that the kinds of things they were doing with biological materials were um, in many ways similar to the ways that I had been thinking about biology, about how it could be done otherwise. So I walked into the lab one day, and I met Drew Endy there. I told him about my work and what I was interested in, and by the end of the interview, he gave me full access to his lab and what I thought would be a term paper turned into a dissertation, turned into a book.
0: Awesome. Um, Thank you so much. And uh, listeners, you can read about this early experience um, in New York in Chapter 5. Um, So you talk about that a little bit in Chapter 5. So this started out as a PhD project, right? So let's talk a little bit about how it became the object we're talking about today. Um, Can you talk a little bit about that transition? Were there any major ways that the project, um, the shape of the project, how you were thinking about the project, really any notable aspect of what the object became transformed from one form to the other? It
1: transformed pretty radically. I finished my PhD in 2010, so it's been a long time since I submitted the dissertation. And... Uh dissertations are, are, for the most part, written for four or five audience members at most, right? You know, the, the readership is quite small. And I, I was very keen to have a different sort of book than the dissertation. So one of the things I did was, as soon as the dissertation was finished, I put it away on a shelf. And I promised myself that I wouldn't look at it until I had drafted – the first uh, version of what would become the book. Um, So I really, I put it away. I started from scratch. And in doing so, I had a couple of aims. One was I really wanted to get away from the kinds of expectations and assumptions that were placed on me as a grad student about what kind of document I would be producing. Um, And I really wanted the book to be able to be accessible to a much wider readership. And uh, when I started drafting it, I was sharing it with colleagues, not just in STS or in History of Science, but um, across the disciplines, um, working with people who, you know, were doing literature or um, uh, I had another colleague who is working on Arabic translations. And and I was kind of curious to see what different kinds of people would get out of reading it. uh, art historians, historians of architecture, uh, lots of different kinds of people, um, and even sharing it with some friends of mine who are generous enough, even though they're not academics, to be willing to read uh, an academic book. And uh, throughout, I was um, paying really close attention to my use of language, um, what kinds of things I thought readers would know going in, what kinds of things I should explain in more detail. Uh, and I think the does reflect that. Um, yeah, I'm pretty careful about balancing, you know, some of the denser critical theory with storytelling and trying to help readers along with some of the more complicated biology as well.
0: Great. Yeah, it's definitely an extraordinarily readable book. Um, and we'll talk about... Um, some aspects of the writing that I think are really exciting in a few moments. But first, let's dive in. And what I'll do to kind of set the stage is just talk a very little bit um, about some of the kind of major stuff happening in the introduction. Um, mm-hmm. and then we'll open up into talking I think about the structure. So, for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to become readers, um, the book follows researchers who were clustered around MIT, but not all based there. Right, beginning in mm-hmm. two thousand three, who named themselves synthetic biologists. It's based on, as you uh, tell us here in the book, eight years of cultural anthropology work, and offers what you call a historically informed anthropological analysis of synthetic biology. Now, a central thread in the book, and um, we'll talk about this in different ways over the course of our conversation, examines the relationship between making and understanding and the kind of different ways that that manifests over the course of the chapters or you know, kind of one of the um, clusters of things that I think are really interesting about the case studies. The chapters of the book not only take us into kind of different moments in um, this analysis that I've just described, but also in turn consider traditional ethnographic conventions as they manifest in the case of synthetic biology. And these conventions, and I'll name them as we work through the chapters, are religion, kinship, economy, and property, labor, household, and origin tales. Now, these conventions, as you tell us here um, in the introduction, are appropriated as objects um, in order to upend them. And the book ultimately is going to show that the conventions are the actor's own conventions, and they reflect the forms of life that are being built by the synthetic biologists. So this is just very briefly to lay some of the foundation um, for what's happening in the book, and we'll talk about stuff in much, much more detail right now. Okay, so the book um, doesn't just have a series of chapters. It also has a series of interludes that come between the chapters. And any listeners um, of the channel know that I'm fascinated with and um, really drawn to books as objects, as structural objects. And so um, this aspect of the structure really fascinates me. Between the chapters are interludes. The interludes between the chapters function as keyword entries, as you tell us early on in the book, and they each probe earlier articulations of what it has meant to be synthetic and these earlier articulations become really important because as you show in the words of the book they inhere in the current usage of synthetic biology so let's open up here sophia by talking about this structure um can you talk about that decision to render some of this work as interludes and kind of how you were thinking about the structure of the book inclusive of chapters and interludes more generally
1: Well, there
0: were a series of conversations
1: around synthetic biology, conversations that I was involved in um, with synthetic biologists, I should say, about the naming of the field, because it was such a new discipline. When I started working with synthetic biologists, a lot of people were wondering whether it should, in fact, be named synthetic biology. And, And I would say that the The name for the field didn't really get set in stone until about 2007. Um, so, while writing the book, I was I was keen to explain how synthetic biologists decided on this name, and I also wanted to think more carefully about um, why so many people had knee jerk negative responses to the word synthetic, and. I I thought that the best way to go about thinking about this is to not limit myself to synthetic biology as a new bioengineering practice, but really to delve much deeper into um, the rhetoric of synthetic and and the etymology of the word and how it's been used at different moments for very different kinds of fields. Um, Because if you think about synthetic biology, a a lot of the meaning of synthetic has to do with something that's either... um, artificial or human made. But I was curious about other kinds of meanings that might adhere in the word. And so I started thinking about prior examples of of things that have been named synthetic, and that included synthetic cubism, synthetic fabrics, um, even earlier examples of uh, disciplines in the life sciences that have been called synthetic. Um, And so by doing so, I tried to open up Um, that meaning and and try to understand what other kinds of assumptions might be embedded in that terminology based on those prior examples. Um, For example, I talk about synthetic music and uh, with regard to, you know, synthesizers and synthetic sounds, I was curious about how people were thinking about something as being simultaneously um, better than the human, more than the human, but also something that could potentially um, change the way music was being made, even um, threats that it might democratize music, um, because anyone would be able to play a synthesizer. And and how can you use that earlier moment in to understand some of the anxiety? that were attending synthetic biology um, much later.
0: Right. And these interludes are awesome. Um, so they cover not just synthetic music, um, but uh, offer glimpses also into synthetic fabrics, um, syn- synthetic as it is applied to the art world, synthetic chemistry, um, just lots and lots of stuff, philosophy that comes up here. So they're really wonderful moments. Um, and the chapters that we're going to be talking about are interleavened with them, even if we're not always going to name them in the course of the conversation and our travel through the book. So the ah. The first chapter after the first interlude looks at um, what you call early experimental efforts to model and engineer genetically simplified viruses at MIT in the early 2000s, and the ethnographic convention animating this is religion. Um, Also, I'll just mention that the chapters have epigraphs, um, and the epigraphs to this chapter are from Margaret Atwood and Bjork, so rock on. Um, I love this book. Okay, (laughs) Okay. So in this chapter, you look at the work of a group that you've already mentioned, right? The MIT Synthetic Biology Working Group in the early 2000s. Um, And you talk about the ways that they um, were trying to, in their own words here, make life better one part at a time. Okay, so in order to open up what you think perhaps is most exciting about what's happening in this chapter, um, I'll reiterate a question that's posed by the chapter itself about this idea of making life better one part at a time. Sophia, what did they mean by better? Well,
1: when synthetic biologists at MIT at this time talked about betterness, they meant it in an exegetical way. What I mean is they believed that evolution had produced organisms that were clunky right as organisms evolve there are certain capacities that are tied to um, natural selection in particular kinds of environments and then that might change over time and yet the genome will bear these relics or remnants of earlier um, moments in the evolution of that organism and what synthetic biologists told me was well that That makes organisms difficult to understand. When they said difficult to understand, they meant hard for humans to make sense of those entities as an engineering platform, because their primary goal was to um, modify those organisms and through the work of modification, understand them better. So betterness was an attempt to make genomes and by extension organisms themselves more rationally designed. um, And we could talk more about what rationality was uh, for those synthetic biologists. But what I was most interested in was the betterness uh, that got attached to design practices, right? How How can we design something to be better if betterness means something easier to understand. And that got me um, pretty deep into the history of design and to ideas about form and function, and the relationship between uh, what it means to design something like a building, and what it means to design something like a virus. Um, What are the places in which those practices have shared commonalities? And when do they
0: diverge? Mm -hmm. Now, one of the important contexts in which this conversation is happening, um, and and specifically the conversation about design, is the context of the idea of intelligent design. And Mm -hmm. you talk about the way that this conversation is embedded in arguments over creation and intelligent design that were prominent in American political discourse at the time. You show in this chapter that religious tropes of creation, and specifically, and this becomes really important, Judeo-Christian tropes, we're shaping synthetic biologists' descriptions of the work being done here. Um, so for you, what's most important for us to understand about the implications of that?
1: Um, well, a few things, actually. One is that none of these practices happened in a vacuum, right? So the fact that synthetic biologists actively avoided the language of creation. They wouldn't talk about the entities they were making as things that had been created. Rather, they were they were things that had been designed um, or synthesized. Um, the reason why they were so anxious about the language of creation was precisely, as you said, because there were intelligent design proponents who were quite interested in what they were doing. And I think in a moment of perfect irony, there were some intelligent design Um, advocates who said that synthetic biology was in itself evidence of intelligent design. Now, no synthetic biologist would have agreed with that. Um, Some people were quite anxious. Other people found this somewhat funny. Um, But the, the claim that intelligent designers were making was that if it's so hard to make life that it requires PhDs at MIT, to spend years making something as simple as a virus, well then obviously life couldn't have spontaneously arisen. It had to have had an intelligent designer, right? Capital I, capital D, uh, and that would have been God. And this uh, Judeo-Christian language language, infected the way synthetic biologists were talking about their work. And at times they would distance themselves from that language. um, But at other times they embraced it in really interesting ways um, by thinking about themselves as either um, figures, humans who were doing what they consider to be, you know, their objective as a species, which is to modify the world around them, or even to be these kind of supernatural entities who are actively shaping the natural world in a somewhat godlike manner.
0: Mm -hmm. And the chapter really interestingly talks about the ways that they cast themselves at the same time as unnatural, natural and supernatural. And we're going to see that um, kind of fleshed out a little bit as well in the chapter to come. That's right, yeah. So the next two chapters after chapter one kind of are paired, right? Like they act um, together and they're they're importantly related. Chapter two takes us into the Bay Area to look at synthetic biologists that were building organisms that manufactured fuel and drugs, and it introduces a setting that we're going to come back to in a later chapter. Um, you talk about here Jay Kiesling's effort to manufacture cheap anti-malarial drugs in bacterial hosts. Now he founded um, a group called Amaris Biotechnologies to engineer a, a material called, or a, um, an object called artemisinin, and we're artemisinin, to, Ar- yeah. artemisinin, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're going to go back to that place um, in a little bit. Now, the ethnographic convention animating this chapter is kinship, and this is, for me, one of the most super fascinating of um, all of the fascinating chapters in the book. The analysis brings together the history of taxonomy, biological taxonomy, Mm -hmm. and anthropological Mm -hmm. theories of queer or voluntary kinship to show that these organisms that are being produced here offer new forms of relatedness, right? Yes. Sophia, can you talk about that for you? What's most important and interesting for us to understand about that? Because it really feels to me like a a major contribution um, to how we understand and practice STS that's coming even just from this chapter.
1: Well, thank you. Um, so I should say that before I wrote this chapter, I, I was giving a, a few talks based on it, um, in different kinds of, uh, conferences and it was the chapter that was by far, um, well, it got me in the most trouble. Really? <laughs> I think, um, synthetic biologists hated it because I was using, um, the anthropological category, uh, of queer kinship, which is also something that's part of a growing literature in queer theory to talk about the organisms they made. And, you know, the audience that I had expected to be most responsive to it, um, were, you know, feminist STS scholars and they didn't like it either <laughs> because, um, I was using, uh, feminist theories in order to explain genetically modified organisms. And so sort of like, you know, GMOs, bad, queer kinship, good. How can you possibly place these things in conversation with each other? Um, But the reason why I did so was because I'm, I'm quite, um, invested in what uh, some social scientists and anthropologists have talked about as lateral thinking. Um, This is something that Bill Maurer has written about with regard to Islamic banking. And um, Stefan Helmreich talks about it as a form of what he calls a thwart theory. Uh, And what that means is not treating critical social theory as um, something that's secondary to description, right? It's not like we have our primary... Story about what's happening in the world, and then we just apply our theory to it. Um, actually, it's about thinking about shared ways of knowing and understanding the world um, that can be read against or in tension with one another. Um, And elsewhere, I've written about this a little bit with regard to what feminist STS can glean from scientific theories. So in short, what I'm really interested in doing is holding social scientific or STS theories in parallel uh, with scientific theory, just to see what happens and what kinds of new emergent generative ways of thinking about the world around us might uh, arise. So... To do that in this chapter, I started with a really simple question, uh, which is, if you look at one of these microbes that's being made in a synthetic biology laboratory, right? it it bears genes from lots of different kinds of species. And I, I list some of them. It could be Icelandic hypothermophile microbes or petunias or any number of other things. And so that doesn't square with the tree of life as we're used to thinking about it. And I wanted to understand how biologists were thinking about biological relatedness and taxonomy in light of these new organisms that didn't fit into our received notions of how to understand what a species is. Um, And this is this This questioning of relatedness is something that anthropologists do really well, right? (laughs) The bread and butter of classical ethnography is thinking about kinship and how kinship ties are formed and understood. But kinship theory has gone through uh, some radical changes in the last I would say, three decades. And here I would um, start with the work of David Schneider, who points out that anthropologists themselves um, can use folk categories to understand kinship, right? Our theories aren't immune to our own assumptions. And in that case, he was talking about biology as the ground of kinship. Um, In light of that work, a lot of feminist and queer theorists uh, began writing about what's called, um, well, at first it was called fictive kinship, then voluntary kinship. Now we talk more about queer kinship, Uh, the ways in which people can form um, families, um, not through blood, but through other forms of alliance and sharing. And. I thought that this was very similar to what the synthetic biologists were saying about the microbes they were making, that it wasn't about blood or descent or genetic material. It was about ongoing choices. And that's how I brought those two ways of thinking together. And I I think that um, it's actually um, something that could, um, in my mind, shape not only how um, we think about biological work, but also how we uh, can I, I think it can also feed back in to some of the theories of, of kinship and relatedness that are now ongoing in anthropology of science.
0: I totally agree with you. And one of the really exciting things um, that comes from this chapter, and I should say for our listeners, we could easily spend the rest of the hour just talking about this chapter. Um, (laughs) There's a lot going on here. But one of the really interesting things that comes up is that you're adding a category of the post-natural to this way of thinking about variations of natural and naturalness that we were talking about before, right? Unnatural, natural, and supernatural. Um, So this chapter asks us to think about the category of... Of the post-natural, in part because I'm um, in the uh, words of the book here, right, uh, which include one of my favorite phrases of the book, nothing has pigness. Um, right? So you say here, nothing has pigness or any sort of species specificity, right, potentially, because genes can now be spit out of a DNA synthesizer rather than being sourced in a whole organism. Now, this statement comes in the context of a larger conversation, right? Um, but mm-hmm. this is one of the chapters that's asking us Given the analysis, to maybe think more expansively and think differently about what it is we're thinking about when we think about species and identity. Um, so, in terms of thinking about this in terms of post natural, can you briefly say something about um, the, this idea of the post natural as it animates part of how you're thinking here? Absolutely. So, the the word postnatural
1: actually came from the work of an uh, artist named Richard Pell, uh, who started the Center for Postnatural History in Pittsburgh. And if anyone hasn't been to the Center for Postnatural History, I highly recommend it. Um, it's a kind of space that's um, inspired by the Natural History Museum, but all of the organisms that are shown in the, the Center for Postnatural History are in some ways. Um, modified by humans. Um, so there are you know, oncomice and drosophila, uh, and it, it's just really a lovely and fascinating space. Um, when I was thinking about the post-natural with regard to synthetic biology, uh, I was most taken by the way synthetic biologists uh, both embraced earlier histories of human modification of the natural world. And these were stories that go back to the Neolithic, um, the origins of domestication of animals um, and agriculture, um, while also distancing themselves from it. So so the the story they would say is, well, you know, nothing has ever really been natural because um, humans, by their very nature um, are changing living things all the time. Uh, Obviously this has meaningful political consequences. Um, It's no longer online, but for a long time, Monsanto had a timeline um, that ended with their company, but began with the Neolithic 12,000 years ago. Right. So these claims of the natural do certain kinds of work in the world. Um. But with regard to this this kind of post-natural thinking, I think this is something that's also beginning to become increasingly uh, common and, and increasingly uh, thought about by philosophers of biology. And this is something John Dupre has written about most recently. Um, he's very concerned with um, the how how species have become post-natural and the examples he uses include um for example microbiome studies right which show that um the majority of um the mass of our bodies uh, isn't from any human lineage, it's made up of microbes and fungi and things like that, uh, which is a materialist understanding of the post-natural, but it's also one inroad to get us away from this thinking about um, our bodies and our species as being something um, that is attached to genetic lineage. <laughs>
0: Great. Thank you so much. And um, I'll just mention as well, one of the really interesting things happening here and really throughout the book um, is was uh, for me uh, or part of what you just said reminded me of that in invoking the work of an artist um, mm-hmm. for, at this Pittsburgh Center for Post-Natural history. And this is the prominence of the attention to work uh, done by artists that you give in the book. And so here in Chapter 2, you begin and end with the work of an artist, Alexandra Daisy Ginsburg, called The Synthetic Mm -hmm. Kingdom. And I just want to flag that for listeners who are particularly interested in STS work that engages importantly, not only work done by scientists in, in various places at various scales, but also work done by artists. And I think the book does a really great job of bringing those together. So chapter three, um, paired with chapter two, we'll only have um, a chance to talk about very briefly, but this is an important extension of the analysis of transgenic kinship that happened in the chapter we just talked about, um, insofar as it looks at the relationship between genetic and then economic exchange in the work of synthetic biologists. And this is animated by the ethnographic convention um, of economy and property that I mentioned at the very beginning. Now you show here the ways that analogies of life to other kinds of objects, right, textual objects, machine objects, really shape how synthetic biologists are framing decisions about intellectual property that include copyright and patenting, attribution, credit, and publishing decisions. So there's a lot we could talk about here. There's an amazing moment that you take us into a class exercise in Drew Endy's class, um, mm-hmm. which is just pedagogically amazing. Uh, so that was, As a teacher, that was just really amazing to read about. Um, but you also talk about this Biobricks Foundation um, that was founded by the Synthetic Biology Working Group in 2006. Um, and I feel like that might be a nice window into some of the um, material that's animating this chapter. so, so Sophia, what is the Biobricks Foundation? And for you, how does this help us understand um, what you think is perhaps most important for us to take out of this chapter? So
1: the Biobricks Foundation started um, with the work of Tom Knight, who uh, was trained as an engineer. And his claim was that if scientists were going to re-engineer the living world, then they needed to start by standardizing um, very basic biological parts, beginning with genetic sequences. And so he had a series of specifications as to what would count as a standard. And he named that standard um, a biobrick part. Or the, the biobrick is the standard and the biobrick part is the thing that that um, adheres to the standard. Um, and what the Biobricks Foundation did Was um, assemble some basic standardized parts. They would freely share those parts with other synthetic biologists who wanted to work on them. And then they requested that people who developed uh, other standardized parts downstream would then contribute them back into the database. Um, And there's lots of work um, in history of science and in anthropology of science about how standards work, how we arrive at standards. Uh, And as a result of that, work we, we now know that standards uh, are achievements, right? They don't just happen. They have to be agreed upon and worked toward. Um, and here I'm thinking of the work of uh, Bob Kohler on Drosophila uh, as one example. Um, one of the things that that Kohler writes about in his book uh, *Lords of the Fly* is that sharing was a way of generating standards. Right, the more he shared, not not Kohler, but um, the the Drosophila lab that he was writing about. Um, The more T.H. Morgan shared his flies, the more they became standardized amongst different laboratories who were um, uh, trying to to build these standards in order to work together on shared questions related to genetics. Um, Synthetic biologists were, interestingly enough, doing the opposite, right? They set up the standards because they wanted the parts to be shared rather than sharing things in order to generate a standard. And... I think this approach to standardization was, first of all, influenced by um, the the synthetic biology work at MIT and its origins in computer science and electrical engineering in particular, which has a long history of trying to standardize parts, um, but also in um, MIT's hacker culture and ideas about either open science or copyleft left science, uh, which rejects uh, intellectual property, uh, in particular patenting and copyright, in favor of um, a more um, uh, what we would call um, freely licensed or open source way of um, generating new technological objects.
0: Mm great thank you so much and there's a lot of other stuff happening in this chapter uh, listeners that we won't have a chance to talk about but it's really fascinating especially um, for potential readers who are interested in issues of intellectual property and property at all and and sharing and it really does um, form a set piece with the second chapter as well now this takes us into the fourth chapter And this is, as I was telling Sophia at the beginning, this is a chapter where I have written in the margins, robots making life whoa, like on one (laughs) of the pages, and here's why, right? Here's why. So chapter four looks at efforts to standardize labor practices in synthetic biology. So the the ethnographic convention we're looking at here is labor. This chapter compares labor practices in two companies. Um, One of them in Boston, Ginkgo Bioworks, is a startup that built an assembly line according to the principles of Taylorism in an effort to maximize labor efficiency. And so the chapter talks in in part about the ways that this is inspired by companies like Ford and Toyota, and in this context, um, we see a de-skilling of PhD benchwork in favor of undergrad laborers. Okay, so there's a deskilling, but the people doing um, the non-design work are kind of uh, younger laborers. The other case um, takes us into. Amaris? Is that, am I pronouncing that no, sort of yep. right? Amaris. So, Amaris Biotechnologies. And, and we talked about this briefly in a previous chapter, which is in the Bay Area. It's a for-profit company. And here there's also a de-skilling, but instead of the manufacturing being done by like PhD students or undergrads, it's being done by robots. Okay. So we have robots making life here. It's really, really interesting. Okay. Now you show here, um, and I would love to talk with you about this for like another two hours, probably, because there's so <laughs> much going on here, right? Um, But you show here, among other things that there are particular forms of alienation that come from mass production and late capitalism that have fragmented the work of synthetic biology here between, on the one hand, high-prestige design work and, on the other hand, low-prestige kind of automated manufacture. Okay, so here at this point, to open up what's happening in this chapter, I want to go back to something that I mentioned at the very beginning of our conversation, and this is the connection between making and understanding. So here we have importantly, a case where it seems like making and knowing are being decoupled from each other as practices. So Sophia, can you talk about that in the context of what is happening here in this chapter? Um, and importantly, talk about the consequences of that decoupling, um, for how we understand what's happening here.
1: So I, I'm, I'm, uh, pleased that you wrote, whoa, in the margins. <laughs> yes. Um, uh, When I was um, workshopping this chapter with some friends of mine, um, one of uh, the people who had read it was an art historian, and she had the exact same reaction. She was like, I had no idea this is happening. This is amazing. I can't believe that new life forms are being made by robots. And I guess I had gotten so far into the field that I was...
0: Surprised that she was surprised, I was like, "Well, yeah, you know." <laughs> so I should I should admit also that I've just re-binge watched *Caprica*, um, which is the prequel for listeners who've never seen that to *Battlestar Galactica*. And so I've got Cylons on the brain. So mm. yes, robots' life. So anyway,
1: yeah, I always well. have Cylons on the brain. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so the the thing I found most interesting in doing the work in in these companies was having watch synthetic biology grow and, and change from its origins at MIT, I was really struck by how different the, the relationship of making to knowing was in these companies than it had been at MIT, right? So uh, for academic synthetic biologists, um, making was something that would further knowing. Uh, And this idea is something that that really forms the heart of the book. What is the relationship of making to knowing? And obviously, this is a question that goes back as far as the scientific revolution, if not earlier. Um, I'm very much influenced by the work of Pamela Smith, um, the body of the artisan. who uh, She's a scholar who's thought very carefully about um, theoria and practica. So, When I started doing fieldwork in these labs, what I discovered was that um, knowing is not the goal of making in these laboratories. These laboratories look much more like... um, biotech companies or pharmaceutical companies. But even more than that, um, making was something that has been separated, as you said, from design. And even in the case of Amaris, many of the researchers there believed that knowing was counterproductive, Right, that their work would actually proceed better and they would make more useful objects faster if they didn't know how they worked. And um, which is which is really wild to think about this this faith that um, computing can produce this kind of agnosticism even within a, a very high tech laboratory. Um, so. What I wanted to understand was where did this agnosticism come from, and what was its relationship to alienation? Uh, and to do so, I went back to to Marx to think about this more carefully. Um, I'm certainly not the first uh, STS scholar who's returned to Marx to talk about biology. There's a huge literature around what's called biocapital. But what I wanted to understand was what is the value that's now being attached to to not knowing? And what I found was that uh, in companies such as this, where design work and labor are separate from one another, um, synthetic biology has become something in which uh, work is de-skilled. It's scaled up both in terms of how much work is getting done and how quickly it's getting done. And it's also automated. So what it shares in common with earlier synthetic biology work is the faith that engineering requires a decoupling um but whereas in its earlier instantiations in the research laboratory decoupling meant separating um different levels of biological complexity from one another. In this case, it was actually about the kind of labor that was getting done, that we were going to separate the more theory-laden work of design from the manual labor um, by which these objects get made, Um, and eventually, in the case of Amoris, even replacing that human labor for the most part with robotic labor.
0: Mm -hmm. Thank you so much. So, we could, like I said, easily talk about these robots um, and things for the rest of our time. um but there's some also really fascinating stuff happening in the next chapter. so let's get to that. Chapter five looks at amateurs and hobbyists. Who are doing synthetic biology. Now the ethnographic convention that animates this chapter is the household, and the chapter looks at efforts to use the same genetic parts developed by synthetic biologists to work outside of professional labs. And here we're in kitchens and garages and community workshops. Now, you talk about a lot of really interesting um, phenomena that are happening here. The chapter takes us into your own experience um, in one of these hobbyist workshops. But one of the really interesting things that's happening, I think, that has um, consequences for how we understand science and its boundaries and kind of what that category means is that you're showing how these biohackers are practicing a form of public participation in science that potentially really problematizes the way we take for granted that science mm-hmm. is something that has an inside and an outside. Um, so can you talk, um, Sophia, a little bit about these implications of what's happening here for how we understand um, kind of w- what science is, where it's practiced, how we understand it to have an inside and outside in these efforts to kind of democratize biology in the words of um, one of your actors here?
1: Mm, that's a really rich question. Well, I would start by saying that um, I think there's an unspoken expectation in much of science studies to study "quote unquote" real science, <laughs> and there's a lot of boundary work involved in figuring out what 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 counts as something worthy of our attention as science studies scholars. And I began working with biohackers because they were attached to synthetic biology. Many of them were active in the synthetic biology community. Um, Some early members of the biohacking movement were themselves professional synthetic biologists. Um, But as I continued to work, um, I I received a little bit of pushback um, from some of my readers who were saying, well, you know, why, why is this worthy of your attention because these people don't have degrees because they're not working in laboratories or in the academy. Uh, and I thought, well, this is a form of scientific work and it does, um, it does Demonstrate something about synthetic biological thinking, even if it is being performed by amateurs, it's engaging in science. And I don't think that the literature in, say public understanding of science is enough to make sense of what's going on here. It's not about people becoming literate in scientific theories, but it's about really trying to do bioengineering in the home. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, I, I I very carefully try not to to celebrate or condemn what these biohackers are doing. And I'm not that interested in whether or not they'll be successful in making something that um, is marketable or, or useful in some way. Rather, I'm, I was most interested in what, what their work was saying and doing. And I saw it as being, first of all, a rejoinder to the kind of big biology that I had described in previous chapters, but which is also recognizable in much of the contemporary biotech landscape. Um, And they were also claiming biology as a right, right? So the very work of doing biohacking at home was a form of political action in which the were laying claims th- to the democratization of biotechnology. That this is something that shouldn't be uh, the sole purview of people who have PhDs and access to BSL two laboratories, uh, but rather um, something that can be approached as a form of artisanship or craft. And of course, related to the idea of craft, again, is the connection of making to knowing because techne and episteme are um, very much embedded in craft practice, right? You have to not only uh, know why something happens, but know how to do it. And um, in that respect, I think biohacking is an important part of the story of synthetic biology because it does tangle with making and knowing, right? They're saying that, um, Biology is on a continuum with lots of other domestic crafts that require virtuosity, dexterity, um, and uh, understanding both uh, the kind of, you know, um, embodied understanding that is required for crafts, but also a a kind of theoretical understanding of what they're doing. Mm
0: -hmm. Thank you. Um, And also, I'll mention before moving on to the next chapter that this chapter contains one of my favorite puns in the whole book, science as a vacation, um, and so <laughs> nice work <laughs> That one, um, I was like, "Thank make, you." Make a note to make sure you get this into the podcast. So people can <laughs> appreciate. Um, there's a pun on Weber. Okay, so this takes us into Chapter Six: Latter Day Lazarus. Chapter Six looks at efforts by synthetic and conservation biologists to revive or resurrect extinct species. And the convention animating this chapter is that of origin tales. And so we have this nice um, inversion where the uh, discussion of origin tales happens at the end of the book, right? Now, among many, many other fascinating things that are happening here in this chapter is you're looking very carefully um, at ways that time and temporality are being considered and refigured here in this context. So we're taken into a conference in Washington, D.C. in May 2013 called Revive and Restore um, that entails lots of talks by people who are in different ways doing this. Um, And you also talk in a way about uh, how coldness specifically, and I have a feeling we're going to talk about this more um, <laughs> in your words, synthesizes and reassembles queers and hybridizes biological time. Okay. So Sophia, there's a ton of really fascinating stuff happening here, but, um, can you, for us talk a little bit about what you take to be most interesting and important about what's happening with time and temporality as it's animating, um, kind of what your actors are doing here in this part of the book? I think
1: you can't talk about time and temporality with regard to the biological without starting with species. Um, and species have, there are many different definitions of species. I think at last count it's somewhere upwards of 50 different definitions of what a species is, depending on what kind of biology you're doing. But the definition that's most common, um, is the one that you would learn, for example, in a a college biology course is a species is a reproductively isolated population, right? So organisms within a species can reproduce with one another, but not with organisms outside of that species. Mm -hmm. Obviously, this definition is specific to sexually reproducing organisms. You can't talk about species in that sense when you're talking about bacteria or viruses. It just doesn't make any sense. But One of the things that I aim to do in this chapter is to complicate and query what a species is um, in the same way that anthropologists have spent lots of time thinking about social categories that get naturalized, like sex and gender and race. I wanted to do the same thing for species and species assumes biological continuity. Right? So, the temporality of a species is that, you know, this reproductively isolated population. We could also talk about the fact that reproduction is the thing that's highlighted in this definition of species rather than all sorts of other biological capacities. But just for starters, you have to assume temporal continuity from one generation to the next in order to understand what a species is according to this definition. And when looking at These examples of de-extinction efforts, they require both very new kinds of technologies like DNA synthesis, but also very old technologies like the freezer. The freezer is something that um, other historians of life sciences uh, like Joanna Radin and Hannah Landecker have written about quite a bit. Um, These technologies are able to stop and start and at times reverse biological time and what I have found is that when that happens, the very notion of species ceases to be sensible. You can't really understand what a species is when you're talking about things that can do these weird temporal disruptions, time travel, you know, looping backwards and forwards, slowing down and speeding up. Um, The definition just completely comes undone. And I think actually, when we start talking more broadly about how life is currently being understood as a conceptual category, I think uh, temporal disruptions are key to thinking about the limits of life as well.
0: That's great, thank you so much and we're going to talk a little bit um, in uh, as a way of kind of concluding about current conceptions of life um, in a moment. I just want to mention for listeners there's a lot of really fascinating material happening in this chapter chapter six and one of the questions that come up that comes up um, that's related to a lot of what you were just talking about um, For listeners who are particularly interested in efforts, to kind of backbreed um, and sort of to, to breed back to Uh, quote, an original, right, Um, Mm -hmm. mammoth or something like that, um, is it raises the question, these efforts to backbreed as a way of, quote, like gradually transforming an animal into an original, assume um, some things about what an original is, right? And so um, as a way of, I think, um, or as part of the conversation motivated by this convention of origin tales, the chapter also is interrogating what we mean by origin or original and what we can mean Um, moving forward and also right now given um, what the chapter is showing us is happening to notions of life and species and identity so there's a really really rich set of questions that are happening in this chapter So this brings us to the conclusion as we move toward our own conclusion. Now the conclusion takes us into a moment in the summer of 2005 when you were in Andy's office and he asked you to contemplate a particular painting. Um, And the conclusion reproduces an image of that painting. And this is a painting you saw on a screen. This is Magritte's Clairvoyance Self Portrait. From 1936. Now, there's a lot um, happening in this painting, but one of the things that I love about beginning the ending this way um, is it's uh, it gives you an opportunity to reflect on a lot of the issues that have come up by reflecting on. Um, the relationship between this bird um, that the figure is painting and the egg that the figure is looking at. So, Sophia, um, as a way to kind of... um, give a nod, uh, and again, to the importance of artwork um, and artists' um, and engagement with making practices as they manifest um, in sort of the arts as well as the sciences. Can you talk a little bit about, for you, what's significant about this painting insofar as it emblematizes or opens up questions that you want to leave us with as we leave the pages of the book?
1: Well, yeah, the painting is—it's um, a self-portrait by Magritte, and as you described, uh, Magritte's sitting at an easel. He's looking at an egg, and he's painting a bird. And uh, the the title of the painting is Clairvoyance. So, uh, first of all, what is Magritte talking about when he says that that this is a painting of Clairvoyance? Well, one one way of understanding it is that what Magritte means by clairvoyance uh, rhymes with what synthetic biologists mean by vitalism, right? That you can look at an egg and then see some kind of potential. And uh, I think it's important that, that this is an image that was shown to me right in an ethnographic context. It was something that one of my interlocutors wanted me to see because he thought that it said something about synthetic biology and my interpretation of (laughs) How synthetic biologists read the painting was that it was a way of thinking about um, the relationship between um, deduction and induction, um, and. What it would mean to create a model that is predictive, right I start my book with this story about how a model cannot predict the behavior of a virus, so instead of changing the computer model, they change the virus um, and the painting is in some ways gesturing toward that way of reasoning about how to um, think about and and predictively understand life um, but what I, what I take away myself from the painting is that synthetic biology is also um, what we might understand as a kind of anticipatory reasoning. Mm-hmm. What I mean by that is that um, in making these new forms of life, synthetic biologists aren't just understanding life, quote unquote, better, to use their language, but actually producing new kinds of theories. Um, and, and I talk about this as a form of interested making. Uh, what I mean is that um, these new organisms, viruses, microbes, um, even if we're to believe George Church, possibly woolly mammoths, um, are compelling objects, right? They, they can, in some ways, convince synthetic biologists of the properties of life um, that might not have preceded their own manufacture. So this is a kind of looped reasoning in which um, researchers want to understand what life is. They make new forms of life, they look at those new forms of life, and then they say, ah, well, this is what life is. But of course, in doing so, they've already torqued or deformed or modified what life is by reference to these very Objects, right? They're materializing new forms of life, but also new forms of, of thinking about life, new ways of theorizing life, um, and that's what I took away from the painting and and from eight years of work with these with these synthetic biologists.
0: Right, Sophia. Thank you so much. I'm going to just kind of end here. Um, with maybe one final question before we move to the end because what you're doing in the second part of the conclusion I think is also really crucial. And I'll just name a couple of things and then just um, ask if you have any thoughts about the final thing. So at the end of the conclusion, um, and this is uh, sort of bringing us to our conclusion, you mention and describe that synthetic biology is diagnostic of three things. One thing about life, one thing about science, and one thing about the history of life science. About life, you say that life is already a troubled and troubling epistemic category. This is in the words of the book. Mm -hmm. About science, um, you remind us that the story Synthetic tells... This is in the words of the book. Is not limited to biology, but is instead perhaps endemic to the contemporary sciences. And you pose that as a kind of invitation for others to consider whether that might be the case, um, and as a kind of promise as we move forward um, to think about this beyond synthetic biology. But I'd like to ask if you have anything um, you want to say about the third um, kind of thing that uh, you suggest synthetic is diagnostic of, and I think this is really important as a historiographic intervention. The organisms of synthetic biology, um, as you say here in the words of the book, necessarily remain corporeal and organic stuff. Now, this works against perhaps a trend um, in the historiography of science to consider life in a way that privileges form over matter. And you call this potentially a kind of platonic um, attitude toward life. So as we as the final thing, I promise, before we move to our conclusion that I'm going to ask you, Sophia, did you want to say anything um, about this last point or really any of these three points that you leave us with in the book? Mm -hmm.
1: Uh, yeah, no, I'd love to talk more about the, the third point. In fact, the third point is sort of the starting point for my second book. Um, oh, yay. good. Uh, so, uh, right, I list all of these entities that people have built in order to think about life. And, and um, here I'm totally indebted to the work of Jessica Riskin, especially her totally brilliant new book, um, The Restless Clock, um, where she talks about um all sorts of entities like uh, automatons, um, but also moving up to cybernetics and artificial life and things like that. Right, So these are all entities that are supposed to simulate or mimic in some way how life works, but they're not made with biotic media. And so one of the promises that I recognized in synthetic biology, or one of the things that I think that sets synthetic biology apart from these prior efforts was that they are working in biological media and materials. Um, But more, I I began to grow quite curious about the relationship between form and animacy. And that's what has... um, uh, inspired the research I'm doing for the second book, because it seems to me that there's a place in the historiography of the life sciences for thinking about entities that are latent, right, that show no signs of life whatsoever, and yet need to be contended with as living. Um, and just as examples, I have on my desk right now, a couple of cryptobiotic organisms. Um, so I, I have a jar full of tardigrades. Um, that um they're they're you know resting right now um but i i give them some pond water every couple weeks um and actually i also have the the stuffed tardigrade that you gave me and um i have another strange entity in a jar uh, which is called the rose of jericho and and it's been latent for some time, but if I add warm water to it, um, it will grow and blossom. And then if I leave it alone, it'll dry out and it will just keep doing this again over and over and over again, um, which is why it's called the Rose of Jericho, right? It's all about resurrection. Um so, so that's what I'm thinking about most of the time these days, these kinds of things that pause and stop and restart. And that's very much inspired by this question of Platonism in the histori- historiography of the life sciences, but also um, what I wrote about in the sixth chapter with regard to biological temporality.
0: Fabulous. So, Sophia, um, there's a ton of material in the book that we didn't have a chance to talk about. And we sort of flagged um, moments, but certainly not all the moments along the way. Is there anything in particular that didn't come up, but that you'd like to mention um, for listeners, and especially perhaps for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to become readers? (sighs) Um,
1: No, I think we've covered quite a bit. Mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, you we could talk for several more days about what I think life is, but probably now is not the time. <laughs> right.
0: <laughs> and you've said a little bit already about this really fascinating second book project. Um, do you want to say a little bit more about what you're working on now, now that the book is out and congratulations on the book?
1: Thank you. Um, yeah, so the second book is nominally, it's um, a historical and ethnographic account of geobiology, which is a discipline that joins earth sciences to life sciences to look at um, what's called uh, microfossils. Uh, so. Really tiny microbes that are very very old, um, usually somewhere between like 1.6 billion years old up to 3.7 billion years old. Um, so anything pre-Cambrian explosion basically. Um, and in writing this book, I've I've drafted it as a kind of travelogue where I go to various places with geobiologists and I tell a story about these places. So I've been writing about a place in the Arctic Circle called Svalbard, um, and there this question of, of Time and temperature is really important, um, but also Death Valley and Turks and Caicos in the Caribbean. And in the book, I'm, uh, again, querying the limits of life with regards to, you know, what counts as a trace in a trace fossil? Um, how can we think about these latent entities? Um, what what does it mean to think about life on other planets is a kind of formalization of life beyond earth. Um, but I'm also, um, I'm surprised by the fact that the topic has, forced me to write differently and that my style has changed quite a bit in writing about this. And one of the things that I've been playing with um, quite a bit is writing from the perspective of some of the organisms that I'm writing about. Um, So in the same way that I have these interleaved um, interludes in the first book, I'm uh, writing stories from the perspective of fossils. Like um, I have one about stromatolites, which are Fossilized microbial mats. I have another one about ooids, and I could tell you a lot more about ooids, but I just suggest that people Google it o o i d. Um, uh, a funny thing that that was supposed to be alive, but then was um, disproven, called Eozoon canadense, uh, which was the dawn animal of Canada. Uh, really, just a crystal, uh, and and. Um, most, most important to to all of these stories is the fact that debates over what counts as life and non-life um, have been ongoing for some time, but they're continuing until today. I'm watching people actively debate when looking at a fossil, whether it's alive or not. And I find that utterly fascinating um, that the question has stayed the same, but the answers uh, and the ways of arriving at an answer are so different.
0: So that's Another completely fascinating project. Um, And we need to talk about that when you're done too. So when that's done, email me. I will call you. And exactly. (laughs) And we will have another podcast. Um, Sophia, in the meantime, congratulations on what I hope is obvious um, is a really fascinating book. Um, Great job. And thank you for making time. Uh, and taking time away from the tardigrades and the UIDs in order to talk with me about it today. I'll look forward to what comes next. Thank you. You've been listening to new books in science, technology, and society. Thanks very, very much for joining us and check us out again next time.